Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show's special March Women series. In recognition of International Women's Day, I'm featuring a few incredible women entrepreneurs of Europe. My guest today is Dr. Olivia Ahn, who is the CEO and co-founder of Planera. Olivia founded Planera as a result of her frustration with companies forcing the burden of waste onto us as individuals. She believes that a well-designed product should be intuitively simple to use and to dispose of in a sustainable manner. Three years of research and development later, Planera has launched the world's first and only certified flushable and 100% biodegradable sanitary pad. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today with Olivia. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nita. I'm really excited to talk to you. I thought we could start off by talking a little bit about how you came about this idea. Was there anything specific in how you were growing up or people or events that influenced you to become an entrepreneur? Or was this just by accident? Yeah, that's a great question. When I was growing up, all of my aspirations was to become a surgeon. I wanted to go to medical school. That was my entire, I lived around house, Grey's Anatomy. It was scrubs. It was everything medical. But it was in my fifth year at medical school when I was living with my now co-founder and then housemate. And I was on my period and asked him to pick up some products. And he came back with, I think, most of the shop. And (laughs) it was the first time that I had to really justify why I wanted a certain product. Because most of my conversations up to that point had been with people who had experienced periods. There was almost... Uh, just a whining or complaining that everyone was in the same boat and everyone understood the experiences. But this is the first conversation with someone who was questioning, why does the pad smell like this? Why does the pad like is so loud and plasticky? Why are they all basically the same? And I couldn't answer anything apart from, oh, it's just the way it is. And then I became really frustrated because I had personally at that time decided to go a bit more eco-conscious, but I just never extended that thought to my period. And that was when I was trying to be more conscious with my impact. And that's how it all started. There's so many single use plastics that you could work on as your first use case for creating something that's environmentally friendly. Mm. But I guess the reason you did the sanitary pad was because it's something that you were using. And so it was actually the first thing that occurred to you. You weren't thinking plastics, which one can I eliminate? You actually were thinking sanitary pad and then how can I expand what I'm doing here with everything else? Yes, I think that would be accurate. I started off with a very personal frustration. I suffer with polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. So I have terrible time on my periods. And I was exploring for a product or a solution that would make it a little bit easier. And every eco-conscious solution was an extra step in my life at that point where I was just not willing to do more than just stay in bed. So I suppose it was a personal sense of frustration and laziness at that time. And then as I was doing more of my research and testing up my assumptions as to the impact of this material and then the application in the wider hygiene industry, I then became very frustrated because I realized that this was pretty much prevalent throughout most industries. I like to think of myself as a well-informed consumer, but I realized that I'd been greenwashed. So I felt rather indignant. So tell me, if someone wanted to go the more organic or environmentally friendly route when it comes to the sanitary pad, there are organic products in the market today. So how is what Planera is doing different from what's on the market today? 
Yeah, I think there are some amazing companies out there that have made great strides towards making a pad sustainable and other firm care products. What I think Planera has done is rethought about what the root of disposal is, because no matter what the materials are made from, even if they are 100% biodegradable, fully reimagined pads, they will end up in a landfill, incinerator, or in a waterway. And they have not been designed to break down sustainably in any of those environments. That's when I wanted to at least use one of the things that was readily available to us when you're sitting in a toilet and I was flushing toilet paper and I was like, why have we not designed products to flush like toilet paper? And that's the difference with Planera is we provide users with a different route of disposal that allows it to decompose. This seems like such a huge problem and such an important thing to innovate in. Why haven't the big FMCG brands done something like this? I have a couple of theories. I think a lot of it to do is with timing. First, the material technology that has developed in the last few years, even in the last three years since Planera was founded, I've seen a huge amount of leaps and bounds from stepping away from fossil fuel generated materials into more something bio-based or even how the end of life of that product ends up. So for example, if it's water dispersible, allowing it to be flushable. And the second thing is really the consumers themselves. I think there's a real push in the market. I think in the previous 50 years, a lot of the FMCGs are built for profitability because that was the number one sort of priority growing, you know, a really healthy society. But now that shift has been outward towards the environment because we know that we are so unsustainable and we need to change our practices around it. So these FMCGs are their huge organizational structures that haven't been built with these supply chains in mind to make it sustainable. For example, the manufacturing of these products for Planera, we have to take out all of the thermoplastic and the consumables in this process, which are hidden to the consumer because that is sort of involved in the standard industrial process for making a sanitary product, but we need to address the entire impact of it, not just what the consumer sees. There's a combination of both timing and the, the era in which these FMCG companies were grown in. I think that's the sort of catalyst for what's brought this about. Do you worry that if they see this taking off, they can just throw money at the problem and do it because they have the resources? Yes, that is one of the risks of any sort of a company going into a sort of well-dominated space. In the UK alone, 56% of the market share is from always. So it's one brand that's sort of dominating the space. So that is a concern, but there are other ways for us to protect it. We can go down the typical route of IP, which we have done, but obviously we need a lot of money to back that up. We've also chosen to get strategic partnerships uh, with our suppliers and our key specific materials because I think the materials are are the key component to unlocking and creating a product like this, as well as the defensibility around these machines, which are novel. I don't want to sort of just keep this to ourselves. I think this technology deserves to go out to the mass market because we need to push single-use plastics out. And I, I don't think Planera should be the only brand that has it. And I think the consumers deserve a choice in in the same way that when you go shopping for clothes, you get a range of clothes. I think in the same way, a, a consumer should have a range of eco-conscious and sustainable products for them that they can choose for. 
So I want to talk a little bit about how you actually went from concept to production. This is not a SaaS product where all you need is internet and then you're off to the races. What did you do in the beginning? First stage was we went onto Amazon and Alibaba and ordered what we could. We had a house, a student house full of different kinds of non-wovens, used an ironing board to spray glue some of these things together and test it out. So it was pretty much a cloth brick as our first prototype in fifth year. We were very fortunate where after that initial kickstart, we entered a university competition and that gave us some funding for it. That allowed us to start working with a third party lab. And we used a laboratory in India because the laboratories that we were looking at in the UK were so expensive that we wouldn't be able to run the tests that we wanted to. So, and also to keep costs down, all of the development and the actual ideation was done by myself and Aaron and just the tests running just the purely practical part of it was done by the lab that was the way that we could try and keep costs as low as possible at that point our priority was staying lean because we had no money and validating that this was a feasible idea once we had done that we then decided that the speed was the priority. That's when we switched and that was about two and a bit years in. We stayed the first two years by raising money equity free through grants and competitions. And then when we realized that we're very confident with this, we know that there's a desirability and a feasibility, we need money. That's when we raised our pre-seed and decided to get go from there. So the first two and a bit years were sort of me and Aaron just hunkering down, (laughs) trying to get a process to work. One was the actual product design part of it, like testing what's on the market and and having theories about what could work. But what about timing? You guys were still students at mm. Imperial, right? How did you find the time to do all this? Oh, it was tricky. At the beginning, we saw it as like a fun side project. And I had never done anything quite as creative as this because I was at medical school and it's a lot of memorizing and learning. And so I found this as quite a nice little escape. Aaron is a biomedical and design engineer. This was sort of a bit more in his stream. And he actually went on full time straight after his master's. Whilst I worked in the NHS for a couple of years and was doing this in my spare time, he was able to dedicate his full time to this. We were very fortunate that Aaron could go full time. And I was able to then join two years later once we raised our pre-seed. Did you do any market validation in those two years when you were testing the product? What did you do there? Yeah, we thought we did a lot of market validation, but in hindsight, I realized that we could have probably done it a bit better. We started off in a bubble of our university friends, then friends of friends, and basically trying to get in-house sort of interviews and focus groups. Then once we got a little bit more money, we started to stretch out into sort of quantitative research with Google surveys and survey monkeys. But again, because none of these were either done through an external company who knew how to ask specific questions and how you structure an interview so that you don't lead them. That was not done. We, me and Aaron did all of that in-house. I think at that point, we did as much as we could in-house. And then as soon as we raised money, then we went with a, a external who did a qualitative and quantitative research to make sure that all of our assumptions were tested. Sort of a yes and a no. So what what is it that you did not get if you were advising other entrepreneurs that need to do market research in that early stage where you don't have a lot of money? Is there any 
advice or tips you would give? Yeah, I realized I was being very specific with my solution when I was asking people about it in the market research. So I was asking people specifically what they thought about a flushable pad. When I realized I would need to really ask, what is the problem that you have with periods? Before I even introduce flushability as an idea to them, before I plant that in their head, what is it naturally that they are having an issue with? What is their current friction? And even if they didn't have this conversation with me and they saw a flushable pad, would that problem be solved by that solution? I think that's something that I skipped. We're very fortunate that flushable is something that people did like and there is a demand for it, but I think we were jumping straight to the solution at that point. So my tip is to make sure that there is a problem that you're solving. Did the external survey, when you did it properly, change anything that you were doing? It changed how I looked at the value of flushability. Because before I saw it as the benefit of our product, flushable is what you get out of it, when actually flushable is a feature. And what you'll benefit from it is going to be individual. So whether it's the fact that it's more hygienic or it's more discreet, or the fact that it, you like that it is naturally sustainable because of the fact that it's flushable. What are the different benefits to each person? And I think there was a very small subset, but this is really interesting, pet owners who found that their dogs would rug digging into their bins. That was their main benefit of having a flushable rather than the other. And I thought that was really interesting, not to confuse a feature with a benefit of your product. That's really interesting because my background is in B2B marketing and I'm always talking about features versus benefits. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense because you're right that the flushable part of it is really just a feature of, of your product that has several benefits depending on the segment you're targeting. So I know that one of the other things that I understand Planera is doing is you plan to sell this directly to consumers versus going through stores, supermarkets, etc. Why did you choose to do that? That is our launch plan because of two reasons. When we launch our production capacity, we are still ramping up because we have the current industrial sanitary pads are run at around speeds of a thousand pads per minute. And we have to validate and build up our production uh, capability to that point because obviously we don't want to start off by going off with a thousand pads per minute. So this D2C allows us firstly to manage that production as well as get as much information um, and data and feedback from our consumers as possible. I want to understand who are the people who are purchasing and what are the benefits that they are gaining from this because outside of a wipe product, this is the first kind of consumer product that is flushable. And I have an assumption that this material technology can be used in other aspects, such as infant care, incontinence, hemorrhoid pads, whatever, whatever sort of personal or household hygiene products you want to do. And I want to test that and understand from the community where they see the most value this bringing to their lives. And I, I lose that sort of feedback and connection if, if I go retail immediately. How do you plan to reach the different potential customers that you think could be a good fit for, for this product? We started off when we launched in November of last year because we opened up with a free trial. We wanted to do a free trial initially because we wanted as little friction as possible to understand what this product meant to our community because the purpose of this free trial was not to make money, but for us to validate that this product has a place in the market and where the growth of this product can go. The original plan was to have 300 or so people, but 
it was great. There was a great demand and we had over two and a half thousand people sign up in the first 72 hours. And then we switched it over. We're using this initial free trial group when we're giving out our boxes for free to understand through a feedback form. So when they were signing up for a free trial, we asked them to complete an onboarding survey. Here we understood their demographic data their interest and activity within the sustainability world, the brands that they currently use within sort of femcare and personal household hygiene, as well as their price sensitivity for this kind of product. So there was a fair amount of data that we could initially sort of get from this. And then after they try their product, we use an offboarding survey to delve deep into what they liked about the product and what they don't like, as well as a question around who they think would benefit from this product. And at this point, if there's someone who really aligns with this product, I hope that they use words and phrases that they like to describe themselves or other sort of peers that we could target within this customer segment. Or if there's someone who doesn't necessarily think this is for them, but they would use words that they think was leaders to that consumer market. So that was direct feedback and iteration we get through our consumers. We use indirect methods as well uh, through online, so Google Analytics from our website, as well as social interaction tools for our digital marketing as well. That's quite thorough the way you did the onboarding and then the offboarding. Could you share some initial insights or patterns that you saw from what you've done so far? Of course. Over 90% of the community have joined has said that the number one reason why they were attracted to the flushability was sustainability. But then when they offboard, it's interesting that over 80% of them put the actual product performance as the most important criteria for them and the thing that they like about the product first. So it may be the sustainability that attracts people. What we see across the industry is that people want a sustainable product. They give it a go, but it is generally the fact that they find that sustainable products either don't perform as well or it doesn't fit into their lifestyle. So that's why they end up going back. So that was essentially the insight that we wanted to tap into and make sure that Planera's products perform just as well or better than other single-use plastic products in the market. So that whilst the sustainability draws them in, the product is the thing that keeps them coming back. So that was the first sort of insight is that the sustainability is the, the tool to attract, but not the thing to retain. The second insight is that the flushability and the impact that really has on the household itself. I underestimated the benefits of what a flushability would do in a mixed and shared household. And I'm finding that the initial customer segments that we built up of, for example, a young professional mother was actually broader than that for our, our initial segments. And we found that because of the shared households and these larger households who were having a lot of trouble with plumbing issues. The key sort of referral factor as well for Planera being like, oh, you can save money on your plumbing if you go with this. So you're saying that one of the big insights you got was that even if people are drawn to it because of sustainability, the product has to perform really yes. well. Yes. I know that you have now brought your manufacturing from India back to UK where you can have close observation. Tell me a little bit about some of the things you're doing to make sure that the product quality is good. It was the R&D that we first brought because we didn't have manufacturing and we retrofitted some shipping containers that were off Shepherd's Bush Market. It wasn't just us dragging a shipping container around. It's part of a sort of bio-design startup lab where you, some of them has COVID testing labs, other places do sort of design art and things. And we chose to build sanitary products in there. The first thing we did was work closely with Water Research UK because they are the regulatory body that does all the testing and certification for flushability. So we wanted to make sure that 
the body would be, you know, happy to certify a product that wasn't a white because that hadn't been done before. So that was the first year. Then the quality around the absorbance and the performance. So that's when we started working actually in co-development with Johnson & Johnson because we recognized that they have sanitary products within their line, but also they were interested in sustainable offering to their current plastic products that they have. We obviously recognized that there was a huge risk in sharing our IP this early. So we kept all of our materials to ourselves, but Johnson & Johnson helped by sharing their internal testing protocol so that we could compare our pads against their Johnson & Johnson market leads. Once we validated the flushability with the testing lab, then validated the performance with Johnson & Johnson, we decided to uh, expand our team because whilst Aaron and I did all of the production, neither of us have done a manufacturing before. So after we did our seed round and got our certification, we brought on our head of, head of production in October of last year. So we only grew out our team fairly recently. And his role when he joined the team was to make sure that there was a feasible way for us to scale up our production. Whilst our long-term vision is that obviously thousand pad machine, but it's going to be a long time to get there. So how do we maintain our process and sell and make sure that our quality is right. Then we brought in our engineering head as well, who has been doing the sort of work closely with our head of production as well to ensure that. With the quality control for the current products that we are producing, 10% of each batch is quarantined and tested. So 10% of each batch is uh, weighed, tested, full sets of tests are their destructive tests. We do all of our tests with real blood um, in the lab for up to 12 hours. The, the test from how quickly it absorbs to how much it absorbs to the strength that is needed to peel the pad off the underwear to the stability and the disintegration in the toilet afterwards. So we do that for all of our batches that we test out because we want to understand if there are any changes when we do upgrades to each part, what the impact is on the overall product and process. I know that one of the things you told me, which I thought was really fascinating, is that the people that you have as head of production and head of engineering who are men, you actually make them use the pads. <laughs> yes. What did they first say? Like when you said we need to do that, or is that something they said they needed to do anyways? I think they were both quite interested. I don't think it, I held a gun to their head. I asked them because me and Aaron test pads all the time and we just needed more testers because there's only a certain number of pads that I can <laughs> wear in a day. And we thought, how can you produce and understand a product if you don't wear it? Because you need to understand when a customer comes in and says it's too baggy or it's too humid or it sticks or I don't like it when it creases and does this or any sorts of language that if you don't use a product, you won't understand. So yeah, all of our team members have worn our pads and our testers for them. What would you say has been the hardest part of this journey? The hardest part, but also the thing that I, you learn a lot from is learning to shed the biases and assumptions that sort of come with every approach I take and also asking what is my objective in doing this? Because I was so ready and keen to jump into everything and I would make mistakes because I wouldn't plan or think things through or you wouldn't think of different case scenarios that could happen. Whereas you can only learn those things the hard way. And we may 
mistakes and spent money where we shouldn't have. Now, um, making sure that we take the time to plan things out and understand what is the objective of us and what is our ideal outcome and what could be the worst outcome before entering into any sorts of partnerships or understandings, etc. What were some of the biggest mistakes that you feel you could have avoided or that other people should be aware of if they're starting a company which has manufacturing or consumer products? For manufacturing or consumer, I think one thing is do not underestimate the lead times of anything that is physical to build. I think it was three years ago when Aaron and I were like, oh, we, we could probably build a machine and, you know, find a partner and get something out in 12 months. When actually just when we have all of the specifications, it takes 12 to 18 months to build a machine that you know how to build anyway. Do not underestimate the lead times for that because investors are sensitive to time. Speed to market is crucial and a priority. So how do you mitigate and make sure that your presence on the market is not dampened because you have a longer lead time because these other FMCG companies already have these supply chains in place and already have these lines. You need to make sure you you know the added value that you bring outside of your product as well. In general, I think in startup, you always underestimate the effort and the time it's going to take. So I want to shift our discussion a little bit more because I know that when you started thinking about building this company, you were thinking of more than just the sanitary pad you're really thinking about changing perception and culture and policy. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that larger vision you have that you're, I know you're very passionate about. I suppose it stems from even the wording itself, sanitary pad. I think there is an unconscious link between the word sanitary and the, the implication that it's dirty. And I want to sort of, first of all, address the language that it surrounds Femcare. For example, when you go into any sort of retail shop and I look for a sign, often it says monthly feminine hygiene products. And I'm like, you could just say personal hygiene. And then I shift my, my gaze across the aisle to men's incontinence. And it seems to me super hyper-masculinized when the products themselves are very much the same. And I look across the aisle and I sort of look away from femcare products to incontinence and other personal hygiene products. I basically see the same product that is in different shapes and absorbencies, but they are all labeled and sorted into very different places. And something that I feel very passionate is about that pads should be worn for function and not sorted for the person that they're wearing for. I, I then started looking at men's incontinence pads and then I wondered where do they dispose of them because you don't get sanitary bins in men's toilets. And then I realized that the end of life disposal is gendered. You only have sanitary bins in women's bathrooms. Therefore, the, it's, the end of life is, is discriminatory. You're not able to have a sustainable way or even a hygienic way to dispose of your products when you're needing a product that one in 10 men over the age of 60 wear in the UK and one in three men over the age of 85 do. And regardless of whether it's for incontinence, for menstruation, for hemorrhoids, for discharge, for sports, this doesn't need to be specific to agenda. All that you need are different shapes for the different kinds of underwear that you have. And that's where I think that there is a sort of broader conversation to be had. First, we need to address the, the practical issues of the, the plastic crisis that we have within the consumer products. But then we need to address the impact that we have of the, the labeling around the products themselves. And that's something that I think that we need to do. 
how do you think you're going to be able to change that perception? Because those are so strongly held beliefs, a lot of them rooted in culture and gender and so many other complicated social issues. It seems like it could be a distraction for a young company like yours. So I completely see the need for it, but I'm just wondering how you are going to balance that. To start off with, I don't think it's the first thing that we're going to tackle because we need to introduce a consumer behavior change of this is a flushable pad, this is okay, and for people to come to terms with it. I think the first step after that would be to change our own language around it. I haven't made a decision around this, but I'd like to explore the language around the pads themselves because I think the words pads, and I think of feminine pads as in sanitary pads. I don't tend to think of incontinence pads as in for men, but that just could be because of my bias from age or my mm-hmm. bias from just my own life experiences. So I need to see if the, the language around how we describe these items themselves do that. And then the second thing is the classification of how we would advertise them. So instead of advertising them as a sanitary pad, we would say that this absorbs, for example, three drops of blood, three drops of of urine and you can use this for this kind of sport and it's applicable for this kind of underwear and show, for example, boxers or this. And therefore people know that actually they're not marketing for this kind of thing. It's also applicable for that. So there are lots of ways, I think, by first addressing the language and the labeling around the packaging and introduce that discussion. But I think we'd need to work very closely with our community as well as the people who would ultimately use this product about how they would want to see this product and how they want to access it. But right now what you're developing can be used for women's and for men's incontinence and for sports because it's just about the absorbency of the pad. Interesting. You've talked about this community and engaging with the community and really making sure that you have this iterative feedback between the product team and the community that would be using it. How are you building that community? So we have a community manager called Alicia who is responsible for every single touch point that we have with our community, whether it's our newsletter, any comments or interactions online, any qualitative interviews or calls or emails that we get so that we always have one person who you've spoken to before and you have a relationship with any specific feedback that we want to pick out of. If there is an interesting answer from an onboarding or offboarding, me or Aaron will reach out personally and ask for either a bit more of an explanation through an email. So it's very personal. Pretty much any questions we have will come from myself, Aaron or Alicia. And we've done hour long qualitative calls with people and we maintain this in general through a monthly newsletter, but we like to make it as personal as we can because right now we have two and a half thousand people who are in our free trials and about 10,000 people on our waiting list. It's not at that stage where we have thousands and thousands. And whilst it is a lot of people, I'd like to think that we make time for all of them. I love that idea of engaging with the community very early on and getting them involved in what you're building. So where are you in your stage of the company right now? We are preparing for launch. We are finishing off our free trials. We are just over halfway through them. And we are also changing. From that first shipping container, we expanded out to five, but we are busting at the seams here. So we are soon to be moving into our own industrial space in East London. We're making sure that our production is robust enough for that, as well as bringing on our head of marketing. We are expanding our team and we're also looking to do a seed round later this year to finance 
the machine. That's what the plan is. We're sort of at the stage where we're optimizing that product market fit, understanding those launch metrics and getting to that point. Fantastic. So when can I get my hands on one of these pads? We will be opening up our shop in batches. So those on our waiting list will get invitations to their priority account anytime from now to the end of the year. We will be launching up our shop publicly once we have brought our second phase machine in. It looks like that'll be the end of this year or the beginning of next year, but people will have access to our products through different means because we we are constantly testing different things. And so whether or not you are on a waiting list or in the public, there'll be access sometime soon. And when you say shop, you mean online shop? Online shop, yes, through our website. Okay. No no plans on, on setting up a retail outlet or anything? No, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot going on. How do you keep on top of what you need to do? Building a company is beyond just a product. There's marketing and there's sales and there's fundraising. You have to understand financials, all these things. How are you as a young founder keeping on top of all that? How do you ensure that you don't burn out? So we have an excellent board of advisors. They they started off our advisors when we were at Imperial. A few others we found on the way. And we really lean on them as well as our VCs to give us that commercial and industrial edge and Both of us are first-time founders as well. So we listen to a lot of podcasts. We read a lot of books. But I've got to be honest, in the last six to nine months, I've stepped away. I used to read a lot more. But then I felt like I would always be thinking about startup things at work. And then I'd go home and I'd do other startup things. So I started to step away a bit more from that. So that actually leads on to your second part around uh, good uh, mind space. I, I don't know whether you can see, I'm surrounded by plants. That's become my new obsession. I need to ensure that our team switches off. And that's something that I can still learn to do better because obviously everyone on our team are highly motivated and passionate, but we need to make sure that they don't burn out. I don't know if I found that secret source yet, but we're very conscious to have protected time, something I'm still learning to do. I think it's really important to have that balance because like you said, there's just so much going on that it's hard for the brain to sh- to shut off. I'm glad that it's something um, you have an awareness of and you, you've as a team tried to do something about. Okay, so we've almost reached to the end of our podcast. I usually have this uh, rapid fire round where I just ask questions that are not related as much to your business. I hope you find it fun. Yes. So my first question is, could you recommend any books or podcasts that have had an influence on you or that you like? I really like Traction. I'm rereading that again. I actually have it right next to me here. How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Consumer Growth, Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Mayers. I think I've written in this, but that's just because of the phase I'm in now, but I really like that book. Yeah, it's by the founders of DuckDuckGo. Yes. Uh, the search engine. Yeah, great book. What about your favorite European city? Probably Lisbon. It's just because of the holidays I've had there, but I really like Lisbon and I love Portuguese food. (laughs) (laughs) What about uh, productivity? Do you have a productivity tool that you use to keep yourself? Trello is my bread and butter. A favorite quote that you live by or that you like? I don't know whether it's attributed to Oscar Wilde, but I didn't have time to write you a short letter. And I think that's my favorite quote because I feel like that summarizes what for me entrepreneurship has been bringing everything into making it clear and focused for other people to understand whether it's your proposition your usp your business plan just making it concise and bite-sized and understandable 
I think that is a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. An, Olivia, for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to using your products and I wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Anita, for having me. I really enjoyed our talk today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building. 